So it's John chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a litre of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing our series looking at different encounters between different people and the person of Jesus. And this morning we're looking at that story that Connor read for us a few moments ago. But I wonder if you've ever had one of those occasions as a family. It might have been a wedding. It might have been an anniversary. It might have been a Christmas it might have been a hogmanay, and you'd look forward to it for a long time. You'd look forward to it as a time when everybody would come together. Even now, some of you are dreaming about Christmas, when everybody will come together. And even now, some of you are starting to twitch, even at that thought of everybody coming together and being in the same place at the same time with too much food and too much drink and everything could unravel. You see, at family occasions like that so often are times when it's supposed to be about coming together, but actually things unravel. Tensions that have been there for months, sometimes years, suddenly emerge. Uncle Sid drinks a little too much and says what everybody else is thinking but daren't actually articulate. Maybe it's a wedding, maybe it's a funeral, maybe it's an anniversary meal, maybe it's Christmas, maybe it's Hogmanay. But maybe you've known a situation like that. A time when it was supposed to be about coming together, but actually the whole thing has blown apart. The first ever funeral that I took 30-odd years ago, was just one of those occasions. I was on the staff of a church. I wasn't ordained yet. I hadn't started training, but I was asked to take this particular funeral. And I arrived at the crematorium, and thankfully, just before, just before the service was about to begin, the undertakers tipped me off, and they said, we think it might kick off words that you never want to hear three minutes before your first ever funeral service. 
The guy who died was about 32. His partner was a similar age. It transpired that the two families did not get on. His family came in first. They were black, Afro-Caribbean, Pentecostal Christians. And they sat on this side. And they came in. And you could see their emotion. You could see the grief. You could see the sadness. You could hear their sadness because they wailed and they wept as they came into the crematorium. They sat on this side of the chapel. And then, a couple of seconds later, 10, 15, 20 seconds later, came in her family. Her family were not black, were not Pentecostal, and not Afro-Caribbean. They were white, they were unfamiliar with being in a church context, and they were brummies. And they were on this side of the chapel. It transpired that this couple had lived together. The guy had died from an overdose of drugs. His family blamed this woman for his death, and this family did not talk to that family, and that family did not talk to this family. And so they sat on separate sides of the aisle, which appeared to be like the Berlin Wall separating the two families. They sat on this side and they went for it. They wailed, they wept, they gnashed their teeth, they did all that they did and that you knew what they were feeling. This side sat resolutely silent, mute, but very, very angry. This side resembled a grenade with the pin pulled out. It was just a question of when it kicked off. Thankfully, we got through the funeral service I left through a side door <laughs> directed by the undertaker and it duly did all kick off in the car park. Then there was a wedding rehearsal the night before a wedding, again 20 odd years ago. By now I was a curate of a church and uh, a wedding was taking place on the Saturday. And uh, as we do here, we had a rehearsal the night before so that the couple could stand at the front of the church and practice saying the words to each other so that they would know who stood where, who said what to whom, and get some of the nerves out of the way. The groom had recently become a Christian through coming on an Alpha course. <coughs> what he hadn't told me was that his parents had had quite a messy separation and divorce 10 or 15 years before. His dad had moved to America in order to get away from the divorce and the separation. His mum hadn't talked to his dad for 15 years since the divorce. The groom, a new Christian, took on board this idea about restoration and reconciliation and forgiveness and decided, without telling anybody else, to invite his dad to his wedding. He hadn't told me, he hadn't told his bride, and most importantly, he had not told his mum. And so there we were, halfway through, all that I am I give to you, all that I have I share with you, when this piercing voice shattered 
any sense of decorum at this re rehearsal as the groom's mum turned around and saw at the back of the church her ex-husband that she had not seen for 15 years. Who invited him? I suggested that we take some time out and about half an hour later we resumed the wedding rehearsal. A family occasion that's supposed to pull things together but actually blows the whole thing apart. That's exactly the situation that we find in John chapter 12 where Jesus goes to a place called Bethany about a mile and a half away from Jerusalem and he has a meal on this particular evening. A meal with his friends, a meal with members of his family, a meal with his followers. This is the night before the first Palm Sunday. The next day is the day when Jesus will get on that donkey and ride into Jerusalem. It's the day when everybody in the crowd will acclaim Jesus to be the Messiah. He will be God's king. He will be God's anointed. He will be the chosen one. They will all pick off palm leaves from the branches and they will shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There'll be fantastic scenes the next day. This night is supposed to be a meal where everybody comes together. This night is supposed to be the meal when everyone draws together. When there's a sense of, we don't know what's going to happen in the next week, but we're going to go through it together. Bethany is the place where a few days before, Jesus had resuscitated Lazarus. He brought him back from the dead. So Lazarus, we're told, is also there at the dinner that's being given in honour of Jesus. And Lazarus's sisters are also there. Martha, as usual, is simply referred to as Martha served. But Mary, her other sister, is also there. The meal begins. Martha serves the meal. The men would have been uh, being served, all lying down around uh, the table as the food was given. And then it all begins to unravel. It all begins to unravel because we're told that Mary, the other sister, steps forward. And she steps forward with a jar of perfume. She steps forward with a jar of perfume, and this has been prepared for me by Rebecca from Eden and Crabtree. Uh, other perfume shops are available. Mona is good because they didn't have a bottle that I could borrow. Mary steps forward with this perfume. It's called nard. It had been imported from India. And we're told it was a lot. It was worth a year's wages. So in today's terms, it's about 30,000 pounds worth of perfume. It's quite a lot of perfume. 30,000 pounds worth. And she takes this perfume, this nard, and she pours it over the feet of Jesus. She anoints his head. Everybody is shocked. What is she doing? But then something more outrageous happens. She lets down her hair. Now, that's nothing in our culture, but in the culture of that first century Palestine, 
When a woman let down her hair, that basically meant one of two things. One, she was available for sex, or two, she was a prostitute. So it would be the equivalent of a woman sort of hitching up her skirts in our culture. The men in, in, in the dinner wouldn't have known where to look. And then in an, an incredibly intimate act, and if you think about it, it is very intimate, she, with this hair that's been let down, she then starts to, to wipe the perfume away from the feet of Jesus. It's incredibly intimate. Here is a woman who should not be in this dinner because only men were served in the dinner. And here is this woman letting down her hair in public and then using her hair to dry the feet of Jesus. All the men would have been outraged. All the men would have been shocked. None of the men would have known where to look. One of them is particularly outraged. John, the Gospel writer, tells us that Judas, who's the treasurer, he is absolutely indignant. What have you done, he says? That perfume, that perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor. John, alone of the four Gospel writers, tells us actually that the motives of Judas are not particularly pure. He's the keeper of the money bag, John tells us, and already by now is fond of dipping his hand into the money bag, one for him and one for Jesus, one for him and one for Jesus. The money that would have been from the selling of the perfume, well, some of it might have gone to the poor, but actually some of it would have found their way into Judas's pockets. So Judas is angry not just because of the poor, but also because of the money that he's missing out on. Jesus rebukes Judas and says, leave her alone. What she's done is, is fine. The poor, he says, you will always have with you, but you won't have me for very long. What was Jesus saying when he said the poor you will always have with you? Was he sort of saying, well, there are always going to be poor people? Was it a sort of resigned statement that Jesus was making? No. He was saying that because of the world that you and I live in, because of the state of, of humanity and our greed and our sinfulness, there will, sadly, until Jesus returns, always be poor in the world. And what Jesus is saying is you will have ample opportunity to demonstrate your care and concern for the poor. And it was a mark of the early church and has been for the past 2,000 years of the church, that the church has taken the lead in caring for the poor of the world. Right when the early church began, immediately almost, the church became known for its generous, extravagant compassion and care for people that the Romans and the Greeks and many of the Jewish people would just walk aside and just leave. The church became known for, if there was a plague in a particular city, when everybody else was leaving, going that way, there was only one group of people who were heading that way, and those were the Christians. And they got this reputation for their care and concern and, and compassion, and for the way that they looked after the poor, for the way that they looked after children, for the way that they cared for widows, for the way that they cared for orphans. 
And that's why all the way through the history of the church, the church has been at the forefront of caring for people who are poor. Whether it's through uh, things like the Children's Society or the Shaftesbury Society, whether it's things like World Vision or Tear Fund or, or Christian Aid or the founding of hospitals or hospices, all of which were begun by the church, none of which existed before the Christian church. Jesus says the poor you will always have with you. They're not going away, Jesus says. But I'm going away. Because in six days' time, Jesus knows that he will be lying a mile and a half away in a tomb in a garden, and his body will need to be anointed again. Because his body will be dead. He will have been tried. He will have been arrested. He will have been executed. He will have been crucified. And his body will be in need of more nard. It will be in need of more perfume. It will be in need of anointing again. And so we have these three characters in this particular story. And it may well be that this morning you fall into one of these three categories. Maybe out of the three, Martha, Judas, and Mary, you identify with one of them. Martha is the one who serves. Martha is the one who is always mentioned as serving. She's the one who's always behind the scenes. She's the one who's always faithful. She's the one who's always reliable. She's the one who could be depended on. And again, it's a reality that in the history of the church, there have always been Marthas. And actually, the church could not have survived without people like Martha. People who are faithful, people who are serving, and people who are behind the scenes. And it, but the reality is that when you've been doing a job in a church for a while, 22 years, for example, it's very easy to start to forget why you're doing it. It's very easy to start becoming a bit resentful. It's very easy to start to look at other people and saying, well, I'm doing my bit, why aren't they doing their bit? After the nine o'clock service this morning, somebody came up to me and said, I am exactly like Martha. I just want to slap Mary. I was a member of this church, <laughs> but I commended her for her honesty. But the reality is, remember someone saying to me a few years ago, you can only minister out of duty for so long. You can only minister out of duty for so long. If you forget why you're doing what you're doing, if you lose that sense of purpose and calling and joy in serving, then you very quickly start to resent other people and it starts to become a chore. Remember a friend saying to me, never let the work that you do for God destroy the work that God is doing in you. Never let the work that you're doing for God destroy the work of God in you. And sometimes it's easy for some of us who have been around church for a long time. 
We've been doing a particular job for a long time. We've been serving for a long time. And yes, we became a Christian because we believe that Jesus died in our place. We believe that we received forgiveness because he died on the cross. And we knew that we could not earn it. Again, some of the words that we were singing earlier on. We could not earn God's approval. We could not earn God's love. It came as a gift to us. But as the years have gone by, we've started actually to put that into the background. And, and really, if we're honest this morning, we believe that God owes us something. Because of all the years that we've been coming to church. Because of all the, the hours of service that we've put in. Because of the stuff that no one else has seen behind the scenes but God sees. We start to think and we start to behave that somehow God owes us. And we start to become a little resentful. Resentful of other people who don't do their bit. Resentful of other people who don't serve as much as we do. We're loyal, we're serving, but the danger is that we become resentful. And the second character in this story is Judas. Now, of course, none of us think that we're like Judas. None of us think that we're like Judas. None of us think that we know better than Jesus. None of us think that we know the priorities for a church better than Jesus. None of us have looked at a church and gone, well, I wouldn't have spent money on that. Why are they spending money on that? They should have spent money on this. And maybe Judas has a point. But in essence, what he's saying is, Jesus, I know better than you. I know better than you. I think you've got this budget thing wrong. I don't think why they're spend I don't see why they're spending money on that when they should be spending money on this. Or maybe you started to follow Jesus some years ago, and as the years have gone by, you've become a bit disillusioned by Jesus. You've become a bit disappointed by Jesus. Jesus hasn't turned out to be the person that you thought he was. Well, the reality is that you're exactly like Judas. When Judas started following Jesus, he was very sincere. He started out following Jesus, believing that Jesus was going to be the king who would get rid of the Romans. He was the, the one who was going to um, get rid of everything, and everything would be made right. And maybe like Judas, you've prayed some prayers, and they haven't turned out the way you think they should have done. Things in your life have not turned out the way you thought they should. It might be in a relationship. It might be in your career. It might be to do with a family situation. It might be to do with physical healing for somebody. But you've prayed for something. You've prayed for somebody. And you've prayed and prayed and prayed. And things have not turned out the way you expected. And that's exactly how Judas was feeling. Disillusioned, disappointed, even angry with God. Judas couldn't let Jesus be Jesus. And maybe that's a temptation for you or for me this morning. We refuse to allow Jesus to be Jesus, to be who he really is. We want him to conform to our image, to conform to who we think Jesus should be. We hope 
And if someone asks us afterwards, we'll say, we're like Mary. We're like Mary. We're, we're like the person with extravagant, generous, lavish, unrestrained worship. She comes with 30,000 pounds worth of perfume and we pour it out at the feet of Jesus. The reality is that most of us think we're like Mary. The reality is that most of us behave as though we're Judas. We think we know better than Jesus. We want Jesus to conform to who we think he should be. Or perhaps we're like Martha. We're faithful, we're serving, but deep down we're quite resentful. Deep down that joy that we had once, that's departed, that's gone, and we are serving out of duty. And we believe that really God owes us. And the challenge for you and for me is to learn from Mary. And the reality is that over the next few weeks, we've got an opportunity to do so. We're two weeks away from Advent. Now, Advent means many different things to different people. Even now, people are speculating on what Advent calendar they're going to get, what type of chocolate they're going to buy, when they're going to start their Christmas shopping. Most blokes are thinking, what is Christmas shopping? Advent was never supposed to be about preparing for Christmas. Advent was always supposed to be like Lent, a period of reflection, a period of refreshment, a period where we draw aside and we refocus our lives on the person of Jesus. Where we say, what would it mean for Jesus to be number one in my life? What would it mean for my worship of Jesus, for my life lived out for Jesus, to be a life of unrestrained, extravagant, generous, lavish worship, just like Mary? Maybe you want to start listening to a podcast during Advent. Maybe you want to start reading a book, and we'll have some suggestions next week for books that you could read during Advent. Maybe you want to say that for the period of Advent, you will withdraw from something that you normally do. A bit like Lent, but you'll give something up for Advent rather than Lent. Something that is distracting you away from Jesus. Something that is getting in the way of your life focusing on Jesus. Something that is meaning that you think you can dictate to Jesus who he should be in your life. And maybe like me, you need to simply allow Jesus to be who Jesus is this Advent. And to say, Lord, would you reveal again yourself to me this Advent? Martha, Judas, or Mary? In which category do you find yourself this morning?